Hey everybody, welcome to the Project Matter podcast. My name is Drew Swanson, and today I'm going to be talking with Catherine Kendall about Buddhism. She's going to answer questions like, what is Buddhism, and what does it look like to practice Buddhism? I hope you enjoy. Well, Catherine Kendall, thank you so much for joining me on the Project Matter podcast. I am very happy to have you, and I'm sure our listeners are very eager to learn about Buddhism. Thank you. Um, So tell us a little bit about yourself. Okay. Um, I'm 76. I'm a retired professor of theater. Um, I have BA and MA degrees in English and a PhD in theater, and I was a full professor and head of department for many years. I taught at Smith College, and then I became a Fulbright Scholar. I lived for six years in Africa. I emigrated to South Africa when Nelson Mandela was elected, and I helped to create a new curriculum that was African-centered in the new South Africa, and that was very thrilling. Wow. Then in 98, I came back to America, and I was a dean for a while, and uh, retired in 2008 and came to Portland. Wow. (laughs) Seems like you've had quite a broad array of experiences. It's been fascinating. And I've been practicing Buddhism since I was 13. Okay. So I think that's 63 years. So it's a lot of practice. Gotcha. So tell us a little bit of... uh, why you became a Buddhist? When I was 13, I lived in Hawaii. My stepfather was in the Air Force. And most of my friends there were Asian girls, and most of them were Buddhist. And I was curious about it. And I did a sleepover, as 13-year-old girls do, at a Korean friend's house. And she had a little meditation room in her house. Hmm. And her grandmother came around and said, would you like to know more about this? And I said, oh, yes. So she taught me breath meditation when I was 13, and it just made so much sense to me. I just took to it immediately because it meant just being quiet and being still and following your breath, and it helps to concentrate the mind. And at 13, I thought, cool. (laughs) I want to be able to concentrate my mind. Mm -hmm. So um, that's what pulled me into it. Mm -hmm. And then over the years, I found there are many different kinds of Buddhism. So uh, as you could imagine, the number of people in China and India alone is over 3 billion. Wow. The number of people in America is only 300 million. Mm-hmm. So you can imagine how a religion would change if it adapted to Chinese culture, Hindu culture uh, in India, uh, Japanese culture, Tibetan culture. So there are all these different lineages and versions of Buddhism, yeah. Thai, uh, Burmese, and each one has a different approach Mm-hmm. But they all go back to the basic root, which is meditation. Gotcha. So supposedly there was a historical Buddha. Um, you know, anytime there's a historical figure and a religion is founded around them, a great many legends grow up. Mm-hmm. So it's hard to know what's the truth. But there was someone 
who was very wealthy and very privileged and whose father, the story is, attempted to shield him from suffering. Mm. But as he was growing up, he saw poor people, he saw someone dying, he saw someone aging, and he began to wonder why he was so privileged and these other people were suffering and why they were suffering. So he became a seeker and ultimately decided that you shouldn't believe anything but your own experience. Hmm. And that's really what Buddhism is. It asks you to sit still, breathe, notice what you're thinking, notice what you're feeling, and be able to let those things go. Hmm. So for example, thoughts arise. And if you just let them go, you don't follow them then they lose their power over you. Mm. Uh, emotions arise, and you'll see that they're always changing. So if you sit for an hour, you'll see all kinds of things rise up. And if you let them go and realize they're just part of changing phenomena, you have a lot more power. Mm -hmm. And I love the power of not being controlled by thoughts and emotions. Mm. I love sinking into an essence of beingness and a presence of being with all that is. Hmm. And that's where you get with meditation. Gotcha. So um, correct me if I'm wrong, but it, it seems like um, a lot of what you said is centered around trying to be rid of suffering. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so the way I, I've, I've heard, um, one of the few things I actually think I do know about Buddhism is uh, is the idea that in order to be rid of suffering, you get rid of desire itself. Is that is that correct? That's a slight exaggeration. Okay. Um, because desire is just so natural to human beings, mm -hmm. we're going to desire all kinds of things in our lifetime. But if it goes to the level of craving, if it becomes an obsession, then that causes suffering. Mm -hmm. So the idea is that if you can eliminate strong craving and vile aversion, uh, you can eliminate a lot of suffering from your life. Mm -hmm. I don't think any practicing Buddhist believes that you can eliminate all craving, let alone all desire. Mm -hmm. or that you can stop wanting things, painful things not to happen. I mean, you don't want your child to die. Right. You don't want your leg to be cut off. You don't want to be in a car accident. Of course sure. you don't. You're a human being. We have healthy right. cravings or desires. Right. Uh, the desire for beauty, for example, for music, for kindness, for opportunities to give service to others. Those are beneficial desires. So we have desires, but if they become obsessive, if they begin to drive us, if they become so powerful that we screen out all the other issues in our lives, then, then we have a problem yeah. and we have some suffering. So that's where meditation comes in, right? where you are just becoming in touch with what you're feeling and that's in that moment one of the things that you do is you figure out do i have a 
unhealthy desire or exactly craving, right or obsession yes you go into the thought that arises so say for example you're sitting and you realize that you're hungry and you start having all kinds of fantasies about this meal that you might have when you finish meditating you could just drop that mm -hmm. you know you could just say oh i'm having fantasies about a meal and i am hungry and you take another breath and let go and you're still hungry but you're not starving you're not mad for food and you're not fantasizing what you're going to eat and the same thing applies of course with sex and temperature you know you have fantasies about this perfect temperature and we have all these fantasies but the fantasies can become drives they can become obsessions and mm. then we have a problem there's no problem with having a fantasy but letting that fantasy control you then you lose control of yourself yeah yeah so um so you talked about letting go of unhealthy desires that's one part of meditation but you also at the very beginning here you said you just love being in touch with everything with i think you even said beingness or connected yes yeah uh Thich Nhat Hanh, who was a vietnamese monk mm -hmm. talks about interbeing and that all that insects and mice and birds and people and cows that we're all interconnected trees and fungi that grow at the feet of trees we're all interconnected and sometimes when you've been meditating for a while you may be in a room with well my experience was 300 people in my early experience and i realized we were all breathing together that whatever air I was breathing, they were breathing too. Hmm. And that my ego, which made me believe that I was so different from them, was just silly. Hmm. Because we all want to be happy. We all want to avoid suffering. Mm -hmm. We all have that in common. And we have that in common with the trees and the fungi and the animals. We all want to avoid suffering. Mm -hmm. We all want to be happy, really. Now, that's complicated because being happy means um, being free, not being bound to obsession and grief and all the various normal emotions that we have. Any of them can completely rule us. Mm. So the, the historical Buddha suggested that there are three poisons and of course depends what language you're using uh, yeah. to understand them but they are often translated as greed hatred and delusion hmm. and it's a, it's fun to figure out which one is your primary driving issue yeah. and there's a lovely little way to figure that out if you are a person who walks into a new house and you say, oh, that's beautiful. Oh, wow, I want one of those. Oh, I like that rug. Oh, I wish I had that picture. Then your dominant poison is greed, mm -hmm. even if it's greed for the beautiful. Mm -hmm. If you walk into somebody's house and you say, oh, my God, this is so boring. 
oh god this walls white walls it's so st stupid then your primary poison is aversion hmm. and if you walk into somebody's house and you say where am I I I wonder if they really live here or if they're just here for to you know if you get all coming up in your head and then your primary poison is delusion so everybody has all three poisons but if you can figure out which one is yours then you begin to work on that mm -hmm. so greed can become generosity when you work on it the, the appreciation it can become gratitude and it can become generosity um, aversion can become wise boundary setting mm. and delusion can become investigation exploration understanding curiosity so they can all become beneficial if you work with them and you don't let them run away with you yeah. but if you don't ever think about what you're thinking if you're unconscious you can get carried away on waves of greed and I think people often do that when they're on the internet and they've got a way to buy something so easily in just a flash of a second their greed can just carry them away and then they've got this huge credit card <clears throat> and they're suffering <laughs> so it's almost like those poisons are good things but they're like just skewered just a little bit they can harm us or they can be of benefit mm -hmm. and the difference between whether they're harming or being of benefit is consciousness and one of the ways to become conscious is to meditate and pay attention to what's going on but you have to slow down you know we live in a very fast-paced world and if we keep spinning and rushing to the next appointment and the next promise and the next thing to buy and so on we can lose ourselves and we can become quite unconscious and the danger of being unconscious is you can be manipulated uh, some political leader could grab hold of your mind and lead you off on some little trail that you wouldn't have gone on if you'd thought about it mm -hmm. um, cult you get you can be drawn into a cult or you can just be blind and unconscious and unaware of who you are and what you're doing in the world and you're you're kind of taken over by your desires I'm, I'm yeah. guessing yeah or yeah. by your aversions or by your delusions mm -hmm. but if you can purify those tendencies by being conscious and thinking about them and looking at them and going into them then ultimately you will be turned in the direction of service kindness and compassion mm -hmm. and so it's it's a really Buddhism is an ethical practice more than a religious practice um, people who are born into Buddhism often do have religious practices rituals that are attached to the practice of Buddhism but many people use Buddhism as a way to become more conscious and more loving more generous and more compassionate for all beings so are you saying that a Christian can also be a Buddhist absolutely many of them are mm -hmm. um, these workshops that people like Thich Nhat Hanh offer are often um, populated 
by nuns and pastors of various traditions. So there's no reason to give up your religion to be a Buddhist. It's just something you do in addition. Or perhaps being a Buddhist and thinking about what you believe might lead you away from it if you were going away from it in the first place. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. If you have questions about your beliefs, if your beliefs have not been conscious, if your beliefs have been handed to you from the time you were born and you haven't looked at them or questioned them, then you might lose some of them by that process. Yeah. Yeah. Or it can also confirm them yes. for some people. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Because the motivation to give service to others and to be compassionate and to be loving and to recognize that we are all we're all doing this together and we are all even the most simple life forms trying to be happy and to avoid suffering. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like the uh, like any, I guess, belief system. It starts with assumptions, s some assumption, and and uh, an assumption that I'm hearing from Buddhism is that we're all connected. Yes. And we all want to be happy. Um, and avoid suffering. Yeah, and avoid yeah. suffering. Right. Um, and those are some assumptions. And there's some ways that we can go about becoming more connected with one another yes. there are ways we can go about achieving happiness mm -hmm. and avoiding suffering and right. uh, those are where the principles come in yes but it, there's no assumption in like a higher power no. of some kind mm -hmm. um, it's more just like yeah those assumptions i said the Buddha is regarded as a wise seeker, and his dying words are reported to have been, believe only what you have experienced. Hmm. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting hearing that, because um, from my tradition, it's almost like our experience is, it's going in the wrong direction a lot of times because we're tainted by sin. You mm. know, we're uh, the whole idea of original sin and mm. uh, when Adam and Eve, you know, sinned right. and we were all born into that, like kind of like a disease. And then our, mm. so our desires are like going in a, in a way that's destructive. So um, there's almost this belief that, you know, to an extent, um, I know a lot of people within my tradition would disagree with what I'm about to say, but for, in my experience, it's almost like you sometimes ignore your experience, um, and instead like put your faith in, you know, like things like the Bible things from above, like mm -hmm. the Bible mm -hmm. and the church and mm -hmm. everything. But it seems like Buddhism is very much like your experience is the ultimate authority. Well, given the also the condition that you could be deluded mm. you know believe your experience but question that experience go into that experience look at yourself again and again and particularly in the area of making judgments be very careful because you might make wrong judgments mm -hmm. so buddhism is almost opposite in that it says everyone has buddha nature and buddha means purity so 
Buddhism would look at an infant and say, this, this is without mark. Mm -hmm. This is perfect and mm -hmm. beautiful and loving and good. And that everyone starts that way. Everyone has that basic nature of goodness. Huh. But wounding can happen. And we can be taught judgment. We can be taught bias. We can be taught racism. We can be taught a great many things that pollute that initial purity that mm -hmm. we were born with. And so by looking into our own experience and our own thinking and our own patterns, we can recognize racism and unkindness and judgment, uh, particularly harsh judgment. Hmm. I think we are encouraged in Buddhism to feel um, generous toward all beings, to feel um, loving toward all beings, compassionate toward all beings, even beings that we disagree with, even beings who cause harm. Mm -hmm. But when we see beings causing harm, then we can be called to action. So Buddhists can also be activists mm -hmm. because they don't, we don't have to accept those who cause harm. Yeah we see that they they started from a good place but something terrible happened to them so how can we reduce that harm how can we relieve suffering how can we bring some relief both for the person who's causing suffering which causes himself suffering mm -hmm. and for the person who's suffering or who's being harmed or who may be the target of harm um, there are five remembrances that I will read you, which I think yeah, are very helpful and which really clarify what okay. Buddhism says to all of us. And uh, they, this particular translation is made by a man named Frank Ostaseski, who is a longtime Buddhist and a hospice worker. And gotcha. uh, here is how he translates the five remembrances. I am of the nature to grow old. There is no way to escape growing old. That's the first one. So all beings, trees, plants, flowers, children, we're all of the nature to grow old. Yeah. The second one is I am of the nature to have ill health because we can't all stay here forever, right? So we all have ill health. Mm -hmm. um, you know, a vine growing on a, on a wall can have ill health. Yeah, nothing lasts forever right. from our experience. Yes. Mm -hmm. There is no way to escape having ill health. The third one, I am of the nature to die. There is no way to escape death. And so that's just perfectly natural. We are all of the nature to die. That's not a tragedy unless, of course, someone has murdered us, and then it is. Yeah. Um, I'm of the nature to die. There is no way to escape death. That's the third one. The fourth one, this one is the hardest. This is the essence of impermanence, which is a major Buddhist teaching. All that is dear to me and everyone I love are of the nature to change. Oh. Boy, that's a hard one. <laughs> All that is dear to me and everyone I love are of the nature to change. So for example, our beloved grandparents sometimes get dementia and then they don't even know who we are. Yeah. Um, my daughter 
died in July with COVID. She was a nurse. Um, that was very hard, very, yeah. very hard for me. I'm still working with that. But I say to myself, all that is dear to me and everyone I love are of the nature to change. Mm. There is no way to escape being separated from them. So if we can just take that in, the suffering that we add to that fact uh, begins to fade. Mm. We don't have to suffer because what we love changes or is separated from us. It's, it's like we accept those things and we're we're preparing ourselves for them and, yes and yeah and you can't fully prepare yourself for the loss of a loved one but once you have lost them you can see that you're connected with all beings on earth because we all lose loved ones there is no family that hasn't known death. There's a wonderful Buddhist story about that. Um, supposedly, a woman brought her dead child to the feet of the Buddha and said, please, please, make him come back to life. And the Buddha sort of laughed and said, I, I don't have that kind of power. I'm just a human being. And she said, no, please, please. And he said, OK, you go find me a family where there has been no death, and I will bring your baby back to life. So she went searching, and she found so many people who were mourning. Every family she went to had known death. And so she came back, and she said, oh, I get it. You're mm. saying that I'm connected to all of these people. Mm. And we are. And so when we're mourning, if we can take that sorrow and lift it so that we feel that sorrow for all beings who lose those they love, it somehow helps us to transcend that personal feeling. The personal feeling being, oh, why did this happen to me? Why my child? Why my grandparent? Yeah. And we realize that it's something we have with everybody. And this is that nature of interconnectedness. It's not woo-woo. You know, it's not all airy-fairy. It's just realizing that we all lose what we love. Yeah. And it makes us understand each other and be patient with each other and laugh with each other. Empathy develops empathy. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And it's not just human beings, too. It's animals, too. You yes. Know? And yes. all living things. Exactly. It, all conscious living things. And right. Even, I don't know. Even non-conscious living things. Things yes. are changing. And yes. Oh, you've totally got it. A, <laughs> yeah. You got it. Well, that's four of them. Now I want to tell you the fifth one, because the fifth one is my absolute favorite. My actions are my only true belongings. My actions are the ground on which I stand. Huh. So one, two, three, four are loss and change and impermanence. But what can we control? What can we have power over? our actions. My actions are my only true belongings. I love that. Yeah. I love Something the empowerment. You have over. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You have no control over the people you love. You have no control over your own health. Some, but ultimately you're going to die. Yeah. But your actions are the ground on which you stand. So um, so that's that's the five remembrances, and it's really the essence of Buddhism, in my opinion. 
So is, does that go those, um, what, what did you call them? The five the what? Remembrances, remembrances, the five things we remember. It, does that go back as old as Buddhism goes yes. back? Okay. Yes. Yeah. Gotcha. So, so the, that's the foundation yes. that all Buddhists share those five remembrances and then and and the four noble truths noble truths the okay. truth of suffering or some people translate that as discomfort you know uh, and the truth that there is a way out of that mm -hmm. and that meditation is the way gotcha. and that we are all in this together yeah, so gotcha. that's the essence of it. And you can see how, if you believe this, it naturally leads you toward empathy for other people, toward compassion, and toward a love for justice. Because only those people who are suffering cause such terrible pain for other people. Hmm. Um, so even your arch enemy, you know, the worst person on earth that you can think of, if you say to yourself, may that person come out of their suffering, you say it because if they came out of their suffering, they would stop hurting other people. So it, that goes back to um, what you were saying earlier about, uh, you know, when we were born, we were innocent. Yes. And, and it's almost like as we, as we grow, we're tainted by the world. We're tainted by our we're harmed by our environment and uh the suffering that you yes. taught the five uh remembrances yes um and and when we have wounding we have trauma and people who are themselves wounded may wound others and so war happens rape happens the abuse of children happens so buddhism doesn't tell you that it's a good world that we live in only that we all have that possibility in us to be good human beings mm -hmm. or good beings, good dogs, good cats, mm -hmm. good birds. Uh, we have in us a nature that is basically pure, good, and beautiful. Yeah. But when horrible things happen, when we're traumatized, when we are wounded, we've, if we are not conscious, then we can inflict that on other people. And that's why there's so much suffering. Yeah. And the other reason why there's so much suffering is that people are not willing to accept those five remembrances. Mm. You know, they want to believe my love will last forever. <laughs> Remember, I, you know, when we were teenagers and we'd write somebody's initials and somebody else's initials and we'd write forever. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And yeah. that delusion of foreverness causes terrible suffering. You can see how it does. I mean, teenagers brokenhearted over love affairs do sometimes kill themselves because their suffering is so deep. And this system of looking at what's arising in your mind and being aware that everybody has feelings like those, everybody has thoughts like those, mm -hmm. may help you become more conscious and less likely to harm yourself and others. Hmm. So, yeah, I may be repeating myself, but it's, it seems like Buddhism is just, it assumes suffering. And, mm -hmm. and, a, and a, the, a way that it helps 
people deal with suffering is one, accepting that suffering is going to happen. Uh, and in that way, it kind of prepares you for it. Realizing that everyone, you know, goes through this suffering. So you feel a sense of almost like camaraderie and you feel empathy for it can develop empathy, which can, you know, change into You've positive totally got action. It. Um, yes. Yeah. That's it. You've got it. Yeah. Hmm. yeah. It's fairly simple, really. I mean, there are many, many texts, and there are sutras that are complex and difficult to understand, and there are great Buddhist scholars who've spent their lives studying the texts. But the Dalai Lama says, compassion and kindness are my religion. It's that simple. But in order to get to the compassion and kindness, you really have to go through becoming more conscious, looking at your thoughts and feelings, and that whole process of recognizing that others have those thoughts and feelings also. ask you about your personal practice I guess mm -hmm. and experience with Buddhism so um, can you just walk us through kind of what your average day being a Buddhist is uh, like so simple yeah I sit for 20 minutes in the morning and pay attention to what's arising I sit for 20 minutes at night Throughout the day, if a very large emotion comes to me, I stop what I'm doing, breathe, and go into it. Instead of distracting myself from it, I try to go into it. Sometimes if it's very, very painful, I just have to say to myself, I can't go there today. I can't go there at this moment. Maybe I'll go there later. But trying to turn toward the feeling, the emotion, the idea, and really look at it, develops a kind of bravery, mm -hmm. a kind of willingness to be with the truth of what's happening inside you. Mm -hmm. And that bravery then keeps you on the path. And have you found when you don't face your emotions head on, they don't go away oh yeah <laughs> the more you don't face them the stronger they become mm. the more you push them away the stronger they become and so um, a friendly way to deal with greed which is my dominant uh, poison is to say oh I see you greed you're rising up mm-hmm I know you <laughs> and then gradually laughing at myself yeah. letting letting that go and the greed could be a simple thing, you know, like I want more time with my grandchildren. Mm. But it's still greed. And yeah. if I don't get what I want, I could make it into terrible suffering. Mm -hmm. I could get all, you know, full of feeling like, oh, my son doesn't really love me and, and he doesn't want me to be around his kids and, and the kids don't even like me. I'm irrelevant. to You know, you can make up a million uh, Scenarios, I guess. Yeah, fantasies mm -hmm. that make yourself the center of the story, that make you either a victim or a victor, 
It's all stories. Yeah. So I, it's 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 simple, and sometimes you know, sometimes I don't get my twenty minutes in the morning. Mm-hmm. Then I'll grab it at lunchtime. I'll grab it whenever I can during the day. And there's no rule about twenty minutes. If you can get five minutes, that's great. Mm-hmm. But just to stop at various times throughout the day and pay attention. What's going on in me right now? What am I feeling in this moment? Hmm. Am I feeling a little bit of anxiety? Is my stomach tight? One way into those feelings is through the body. Are my hands sweating? Is my neck tight? Uh, Where do I hold my tension? Do I hold it in my lower back? Do I hold it in my belly? What's tight in me right now? And what clue could that give me to what's going on in case you know some people you say to them what are you feeling and they say well i don't know i'm not feeling anything they are hmm. they're all we're always feeling and thinking we never stop right and we don't stop when we meditate that's another misconception some people have that buddhists are people who can just totally clear their minds no we cannot clear our minds the nature of the human mind is to be busy the nature of human feelings is to keep changing. And many people love their feelings, and so they really develop and cultivate having strong feelings. And that's great. That's a very intense person. Yeah. But that person can also look at themselves and say, oh, well, I'm really actually building this up. Yeah. Huh. So, all right, so your, your daily life is... It, it, Just as space is in it. Just yeah. and spaces for that meditation. Spaces for quiet. Yeah. Can you think of um, just like a example of a time where you sit, like maybe you came to some realization within you, or uh, just I guess a simpler way to ask this question is just can you think of a time where you were very positively affected by this meditation? Well, yes, I'm dealing with my daughter's death. She just died on July 18th. And I think without this practice, I would have been absolutely mad with grief. But the practice reminds me that everybody dies and that every family loses people they love. And that raises my personal despair to um, a much larger, more transcendent connection with all beings. And that has been enormously helpful to me. Um, I had an altar to her for 49 days because that's a Buddhist practice too. After someone dies, you, you have an altar for 49 days and that's, that's a time when you go into your suffering and your loss of them. When you remember them, you talk about them, you love them, you look at pictures of them. And after 49 days, you begin the process of directing your sorrow to the sorrow of the world and also directing your loss to gratitude for the time that you did have. Mm. And that has been enormously helpful to me. One of my friends said, Buddhism is not very comforting. I mean, you don't have any picture of heaven. And I said, no. We know that we don't know what happens after death. Mm -hmm. And that's not comforting. But 
the practice of converting loss to gratitude and converting sorrow to the great compassion for the world. Those practices are enormously comforting, ultimately. Mm -hmm. But you have to go through the sorrow. If I didn't cry, if I pushed it away, if I distracted myself, if I watched a lot of movies and just refused to think about it, I would, I would hear a piece of music that she loved, and I would be devastated. Mm -hmm. I'd have to stop driving my car. I'd just be wiped out. And some of some that may still happen. But when it happens, I go into it and I say, oh, this is my sorrow. This is my grief. Mm. I meet you, grief. I embrace you. Mm -hmm. I hold you. And I hold her. And I may cry or I may not. But it's ultimately more comforting to me than the idea of some heaven that she's gone to where I might see her again. Mm. Because I, I haven't experienced that. If I have, I don't remember it. So I don't really trust that. Mm -hmm. So what's really beautiful to me is, um, well, just just turning such a painful experience into an outward um, action, mm. po outward positive action towards mm. the world, and that there's a structure in place for that, um, and also the recognition that uh, grief is not so different from positive outward service to the world it's it's like those are two of the same thing like yes. part part of the positive outward service to the world is grief yes and it's almost like you just turn grief like 45 degrees in a different direction yes and then you have the positive outward service to the world exactly such a weird phrase i've said that like yeah. six times so i don't That's know how else right. to say it <laughs> well and you don't have to be a buddhist to do that um yeah. one of my closest friends is the grandmother of moose Qantas hayes who was killed by the portland police in 2017. Mm. she joined an organization of parents of people who've been killed by the police and they give each other such kindness such love such celebration on the birthdays of those children mm -hmm. and also such uh, communal grieving on the anniversaries of their death. And so you don't have to be a Buddhist to use your grief for the benefit of others. Mm -hmm. But I mention it because it's been helpful to me. Yeah. Yeah. And um, something we didn't mention i i found you on facebook uh just yeah. uh i i even forget the group but i know it's a non-profit organization a buddhist non-profit or organization and you are heavily involved in that right yes. are, are you one of the leaders of that yes okay. portland buddhist peace fellowship um gotcha. we have often come together in meditation when the proud boys were coming to town and 
Antifa was going to be meeting them and there was going to be great suffering and great anger. And we often will have a public meditation the morning before that happens as a way to just purify the ground and to offer the wish that people come out of their suffering and be able to mm, not tolerate each other but to recognize some fundamental quality of humanness in each other. Mm. And we wouldn't ask anyone to love a fascist, but we would ask to think about what you're doing. Consider your actions before you take those actions. Mm. Be conscious of your behavior your words, the way you're behaving today, the choices that you're about to make. Be conscious of that. Mm -hmm. And then take the responsibility. Your actions are the ground on which you stand. So being involved in that meeting, um, if I'm hearing you right, you believe that congregating with other Buddhists is benefiting the uh, the Proud Boys and uh, the or Antifa is it, an, or or is it more beneficial for the people involved in the meeting? I think it's most beneficial for the people who come to share that moment, mm -hmm. and the Proud Boys have been extremely hostile to us, and they have never joined us. A number of people from the Antifa groups have joined us, and we're very happy to have them join us. So we think if you choose to spend your time focusing on being conscious of your actions, your actions are going to be less harmful to yourself and others. Mm -hmm. And um, I have a lot of feelings about justice and a lot of feelings about people who harm other people. And I have to work very hard not to hate and to be able to say, may you come out of your suffering and at the same time to fight for justice. Mm. And that courage that you get from meditation, that courage to face your own shadow, your own greed, hatred and delusion can help you fight for justice in ways that are ultimately beneficial to the world, mm -hmm. we hope. Yeah. Yeah. So it was almost like a, a invitation to join in the, the activity of meditation, yes. basically. Yes, that's and, exactly and what it is. To, to climb onto the path that can help them Become not, more conscious. Yeah, become yeah. more conscious and turn away from right. the hate and all that. And we, we end those meditations with what's called metta, which is we say, may you be safe. May you be peaceful. May you be filled with loving kindness for yourself and others. And we wish that for everybody. Hmm. Um, and it's very complicated. We live in such... Uh, a world of hatred 
you know, this polarization that has happened, the income inequality that has happened, makes it very easy to hate. Mm -hmm. And so all we can ask is that you look at yourself, look at the hate in yourself. What does that feel like? Do you feel that in your gut? Do you feel that in your fist? Does your fist close up with that hatred? How is that for you? You know, so we, we offer an opportunity for people to look without judgment at what's happening in themselves and to make informed decisions. How do I fight for justice? Is it right to punch a Nazi? Well, that's up to you. You have to decide that in your meditation. I'm not going to tell you what's right. Yeah. Yeah. But it's, there. there is a desire um, that they come to the conclusion themselves that maybe punching a Nazi isn't. <laughs> well, the, if the right they way. punch a Nazi, they do it with a willingness to accept the consequences for their action. Yeah. I would not say don't do it. I would say look at how that affects you. Look at how it affects your children. Mm -hmm. And if you believe that's the right thing to do, then punch with all your heart. Hmm. Just, it's just up to you, your actions. Be aware of what's going on in yourself. Yes. And uh, make your decision. Make your decision, but make it an informed decision. Yes. And not a blind decision. Exactly. That's just purely controlled by by uh, a wave of hatred. Yeah, just emotion, I guess. Yeah. 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 Gotcha. So, so we would never tell anybody how to behave, mm -hmm. but we would urge people to look at how that behavior affects them. Mm -hmm. And if they decide that is the right behavior, then bless them. May okay. they do it with force and with all that is in them because their actions, like mine, are the ground on which they're going to stand. So this um, nonprofit organization is it? It's, it's actually not a nonprofit. No, it's it's not. Okay. we don't have any treasury at all. We have no money. It okay. isn't like we just don't make money. We are anti-capitalist, um, and we have no treasury. When we need money for a banner or something like that, we take up a collection among the people who are there. Okay. So we we it's not a nonprofit. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, but this uh, organization, yeah. is it mainly centered around social justice? Mm -hmm. or, uh, okay. Yes. So it's a social um, justice. It goes group. back to the 70s. Uh, there was something called the Fellowship of Reconciliation. Do you know about that? No, I don't. There was a fellow named A.J. Musty who held a candle in front of the White House every night throughout the Vietnam War. And somebody asked him, do you think that's going to change the government? And he said, I don't hold this candle to change the government. I hold it so the government doesn't change me. Huh. And he formed a group called the Fellowship of Reconciliation. And then the Buddhist Peace Fellowship was sort of grew out of that from the Buddhists who were in that organization. So the Buddhist Peace Fellowship started during the Vietnam War. And it has been focused on social justice all these years. And it still is. Gotcha. Yeah. Are, are there any other meetings that you are a 
you are a part of Buddhist meetings outside of that group? Yes. And if so, what do they look like? Well, a spiritual group that meditates together is called a Sangha. And I belong to four Sanghas, and we wow. meditate together. Um, but the Buddhist Peace Fellowship is composed of people who belong to hundreds of Sanghas. So we have people who belong to a Tibetan Sangha, a Vietnamese Sangha, a Burmese Sangha, uh, a Sangha which is composed only of Americans who have created their own way of meditating and doing Buddhism. Mm -hmm. um, we have Hindu people in the group. We have people who aren't Buddhists, but who still meditate. So it's the combination of meditation and working for social justice that makes us who we are. Gotcha. Yeah. So when you get together and meditate together, how long is it usually for you? And is there any sort of like discussion afterwards? Or We have planning before. We have discussion afterwards. Sometimes we do walking meditation. We walked around the ice building in southwest Portland for two and a half years. Mm -hmm. Every Thursday, we walked around that building. And again, it wasn't because we thought it would bring down ice. It was because we knew that we had to stand for what we believed. Mm -hmm. We believed that children don't belong in cages. We believe in opening our borders to immigrants and refugees. And so we walked around that building knowing that we wouldn't change ice. But our commitment was to be there and to stand up for what we believe. So we had that walking meditation. We had, uh, this past year, we had meditations for Black Lives Matter. Mm -hmm. And we would walk around Chapman Square or walk around City Hall, some people carrying signs and some people just carrying the intention in their hearts black lives matter black yeah. lives will always matter and uh, so we do various things depending on the group that is guiding and what they feel like we need to be doing right now hmm. so at the moment uh, I guess our last thing was we walked around City Hall because we wanted the city council and the city officers to stop sweeping away homeless people, to be aware that housing is necessary for all people, mm -hmm. that a basic income is would be a really good thing for all people, that um, a country that doesn't take care of its most vulnerable people mm -hmm. has something rotten at the core. Um, the Buddha talked about that. He said a wheel-turning king, which means a king who is in, the, in harmony with the world, mm -hmm. has no poverty in his kingdom. Mm -hmm. So uh, that sense of social justice goes right back to the Buddha. Mm -hmm. And we we may be different kinds of Buddhists. You know, some Buddhists do believe in deities. Some people, some Buddhists uh, practice chanting. Some Buddhists practice koans. Some Buddhists practice walking and sitting meditation. But we all come together around social justice. Hmm. Gotcha. It's like the glue is the principles. Yes. 
Uh, but a common thing that you can all do together is social justice. Yes. Yeah. Yes, because it's it's compassion in action. Mm -hmm. It's love in action. It's service in action. Mm -hmm. Without social justice, those things are just empty words. And when we sit in meditation, it's not just for our individual happiness. It's for all the world that we're connected to. Because any suffering is our suffering. All the children are our children. Hmm. Yeah, all suffering is our suffering. That's yes. a big statement. And yeah, that's beautiful. So for somebody who wants to get involved in some of these uh, Buddhist gatherings, uh, how would they get involved? Well, you could like us on Facebook. Okay. <laughs> it's Portland Buddhist Peace Fellowship. Uh, we're also on Twitter as Buddhist Block, okay. and we're on Instagram. I think we are Portland Buddhist Peace Fellowship on Instagram. And um, find yourself a Sangha that you want to meditate with. Mm -hmm. And then when you get grounded in your practice, come and join us. We would yeah. love to have people join us. And if you just want to come and join us when we're having an action, you don't have to be grounded in Buddhism. Just come and see how it is. Right. Yeah. I'm curious. Uh, I, I was at Mount Tabor Park um, by the basketball court. There's like that other courtyard. And I saw a Buddhist meditation going on. And there was like, I don't know, 30 people. Was that you guys? Were you aware no. of that? Okay, that no. was probably just a... Some other another, group. Maybe yeah. a Sangha. Yeah. Yeah. Probably a Sangha, because uh, many of the Sanghas have a building where they have been meeting for some years, like Dharma Rain Zen Center and uh, Heart of Wisdom Zen Center. But because of COVID, they haven't been able to meet inside. So they've been meeting outside and they've been having online services. Mm -hmm. um, but they're also what we call heritage Buddhists, Buddhists. Uh, for example, Cambodian Buddhists who practice in the ways of their parents and their ancestors. Mm -hmm. And they have a temple called Wat Dhamma And we had some solidarity uh, meditations with them because uh, during the last administration, there was a great deal of hatred of Asian people that was built up. Yeah. And um, many of the Asian people who practice Buddhism were threatened, um, who were um, maligned by people passing by with American flags on the back of their truck. And so we stood with them outside their temple when they were having services in order to create a kind of wall of defense. Mm. And uh, that was a, a beautiful operation for us. We felt. Um, we felt that we had been helpful because they did feel safer because they yeah. had a wall of Buddhists who were not like them, but who were standing for them. Hmm. Yeah. Wow. So that was another thing we did. That's really, really beautiful. Yeah. Well, um, one of the things that I'm interested in is just the topic of uh, interconnectedness and um, I believe there are some people out there that 
don't even believe in the idea of individuality um, almost. It, um, maybe I'm misinterpreting them, uh, but what, what I heard you say is that we are individuals. You didn't say this explicitly, but what, what I heard was we are individuals, we have an ego, but we're just, we have so much in common yes. with each other and that we're connected. Would you go as far as saying that the the self is almost like a myth? Yes, I would go that far. Okay, can you explain that a little bit? Because that's <laughs> something I've never really understood because I feel like I am a separate <laughs> being, I guess. But Well, that is a very powerful feeling that many of us have. I have that feeling too. But when I meditate and I notice how my feelings change and my thoughts change and my breath changes, sometimes I get the feeling that this is all just a story. Um, that the truth is there is an energy that has risen up in me and it's called life. Mm -hmm. And when I'm gone, I don't know what's going to happen to that energy. But making much of this individuality that I think I have separates me from other people. And whatever separates me makes me lonely. It does not make me better. So this ego that creates the sense that I am different from you separates us. And when I focus more on how I am like you, I am less separate. And what could be the good of being more separate? Hmm. So I think, I think that really in my heart, I think that it's all a story. I think that this separate self doesn't really exist. It has created as a result of conditions that happen during our lifetime. And when we die, that's the end of it. It'll be gone. Hmm. But the energy that comes through us, that gives us life, that energy is something that we could beautify by more kindness and more compassion. And maybe as it goes on, maybe it goes on after us and it will be evolved yeah. and a kinder thing will happen afterwards if we have made our soul more compassionate and caring. Mm. Because this story of mine, you know, I was born in a certain place, I had certain parents, I did certain things with my life, that's a handy story to have. We all have to introduce ourselves. But it's kind of a fiction mm. because when we're gone, what will there be of it? Mm. Our actions will remain. Our actions are what, what we own and what affect things in the world. But who, who keeps going after we're dead? We don't know. That's so interesting. It's so over my head. Yeah. Um, so, but I, I kind of understand what you're saying. It's like, well, there's a lot written about it. And uh, a lot of the people who like Buddhist scholarship talk about no self. Hmm. And you can look it up and you can read about it forever. What, what are some good introductory books? Or maybe just one or two? Um, and that's okay if you don't remember, because I know that's a hard question. <laughs> uh, no, there's a teacher, Bhikkhu Bodhi, B-H-I-K-K-H-U, B-O-D-H-I. -K -K -H -H 
He is a Buddhist scholar, and any of his books will take you to the deep philosophical Buddhism that is thousands of years old, a couple thousand years old anyway. And Bhikkhu Bodhi is, for me, a real inspiration. Um, I think he's in the Tibetan path, actually, but I don't even know what his path is mm. because he inspires me by his scholarship and he inspires me by his social activism. Mm. He has created an organization called Global Relief, and they provide food for the poorest people in the world. Mm. And um, he believes deeply in the equality of all beings. He believes deeply in the importance of social justice. And he is horrified by the income inequality that we have now and by the people who, you know, and the 1%, if you want to call it that, the, the people who are billionaires, who are not sharing, mm -hmm. who are not supporting others, who are hoarding the funds and the, and the power that could make the world such a better place. Mm. These people he sees as deeply diseased. Mm. And, and I find him a, a great leader. So I think any of his books, uh, he deals with the concept of no self. Okay. So if you wanna study that, uh, you can study that from him as well. But he always brings it back to justice, mm -hmm. kindness, compassion, and sharing. Those are the actions that should come out yeah. of beliefs like there is no self. Yes. Because if there's no self, there are all kinds of, th that's, those are the implications. Exactly. <laughs> I mean. Yeah. And I have lived by that. Mm -hmm. um, I'm, I'm living in subsidized housing. I have no money. I have nothing but Social Security because I have always given what I had to those who had less. And that's. That's my Buddhism. That that got into me when I was 13 years old. Hmm. And I am very comfortable with that. I'm, I'm at peace with that. I'm very happy to say my actions are the ground on which I stand. Wow. Yeah. Were you all in completely at 13? No. I was... Um, I was drawn to the peacefulness and the quiet. I'm an introverted person, so mm -hmm. it suited me really well. Um, and I was ignorant, really. I, I got that meditation gave me something that I wanted, and I'm using me and I in that egoistic way. Uh, but this is many, many years later. And I've done so much study and so much practice. And for some years, I was planning to be a, a Buddhist nun. Mm -hmm. But I found that um, that didn't just work out. You know, the, the way for me, for one thing, I wanted to be in Thich Nhat Hanh's order. And he doesn't take anybody over 55. And I was 56 when Aww. I showed up there. <laughs> so, you know, so the doors didn't open. Mm -hmm. and, but I lived my life the same. Yeah. I just didn't, didn't have the community. Mm -hmm. but And I also had certain freedoms that I've enjoyed because I didn't give up mm -hmm. everything and go live in a community. Gotcha. Yeah. Well, that's all the questions I have. Do you have anything else you would like to share? Well, I think we share the belief in the beauty of compassion and sharing and kindness to others 
And that's the ground on which we all stand. We all stand there together. We're connected. And you don't have to know a lot of esoteric practices. You know, all you have to do to meditate is breathe mm. and be quiet. And from there, you can find a teacher who can take you in many different directions. Mm. But a 13-year-old can do it. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just going into the truth. What is the truth of this moment? Who am I in this moment, even if I is a delusion? Uh, what, what's arising in me in this moment? Can I look at it? Do I have judgments about it? Can I let those go and really look? Hmm. Yeah, so it's a, it's a ground of kindness, and it is an, a ground of acceptance of what is the truth of what's going on in me. So it's, it is uh, the only way you can do something wrong is to not look at the truth. You know, distract yourself, hide, run away. There's thousands of things people do to avoid looking at the truth. But ultimately, something's going to happen to you and you're going to end up looking at the truth. So it doesn't have to be all highfalutin. You know, we don't have to have a lot of special words from other languages. Yeah. We just have to be able to stop and pay attention to what's going on inside. What's, what's in this space that I'm operating from on the world? What's the energy? You know, in this body that I'm inhabiting right now, what's going on? Is there tightness? Is there fear? Is there sweating? Is there trembling? Is there passion? Is there lust? Is there hunger? Is there a desire for beauty? All these things we all do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm thinking of my grandson who just told me yesterday that everybody farts. And it's it's, it's true. It's pure Buddhism. <laughs> yeah. He's six, by the way. Oh yeah. So it is true that everybody farts. It is true that everybody has desires. Mm -hmm. It is true that everybody is afraid sometimes and wants to be at ease, wants to have self-respect and and peacefulness mm -hmm. and less pain yeah yeah so that's what we've all got in common mm -hmm. and i i uh, i send my love to your audience <laughs> may they feel ease may they may they love themselves may they accept themselves well, Catherine, it's been an honor talking Thank with you. you. Thank you so much for being on the Project Matter podcast. Thank you very much. All right, everybody, that concludes my conversation with Catherine. I really encourage you, though, if you want to learn more about Buddhism or you want to get involved with Buddhist communities, I recommend checking out the resources that Catherine has provided us with that are listed in the description. Also, if you want to continue talking about some of the ideas that you heard in this podcast, I invite you to make your way on over to the Project Matter social media pages. Thanks for listening.